Good morning, Axis Church. How are we doing? We're starting a new series today. It's a study in 1 John, as you can see behind me. And 1 John is one of 21 letters that we see in the New Testament. And uh, we refer to them as epistles. Uh, they, are, uh, they make up a large, uh, uh, a large portion of uh, the overall New Testament text. And so we're going to be diving into this text today a little bit, and uh, we'll do that in just a bit. But it had me kind of thinking about letters this week. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you're like me, maybe I'm just a traditionalist, but I, I sort of like letters. Like, I still like letters. And I sort of grew up in a time that it was more text me- messages, digital mediums, all this stuff. But anybody else, like, just like getting a letter and uh, getting something in the mail, like some physical mail? Now, I know anymore you go to the mailbox and it's like mostly garbage, right? Like I did a sift through, like I'm like, okay, garbage, garbage, sales, advertisement, court summons. I'm just kidding. Um, But you know, most of the stuff you get in the mail is usually not good or favorable. It's a bill, it's whatever. But I'll be honest, I still get mail. um, And one of the places that I get sort of a a stream of messages or stream of mail is from my grandma. I'm, I'm not you know, above admitting that, I still get letters from my grandmother, and I love it. It's like my favorite. She never misses a holiday. I get a card. Now, I'm not just talking about like on my birthday, like every holiday. And you know, there's a lot of holidays, <laughs> you know, these days. It's like, you know, on Halloween, on Christmas, I, you know, we get a card, and everybody in our family gets a card, and it's great because it's like it has the personal touch. It's just a reminder that she's thinking of us. And usually, it will be a little bit like a, a hard copy of a picture in there, and uh, it'll be some picture that we have taken a picture on our Facebook or whatever, and she will like jump on right away, print off that picture, and send it to us, like in a hard copy, and I just love that, and it's, a, it's just a great personal touch, and she also, a lot of times, I can't complain about this, um, she usually will send us some money on these holidays, too, you know, it's like, hey, go out, have a nice dinner on, on me, and uh, she started to kind of figure out that, like, maybe it wasn't a good idea to just send cash in the mail, and so I, I don't tell anyone, but my, my grandmother has been printing off fake money and sending it in the mail, and then she uses Venmo, and she'll send us the equivalent of the money that she had. So it's great. I like, she's like, hey, don't tell anyone. She's like, it looks real, too. I'm like, wow, like I got all this counterfeit, like, cash in my house. You know, if I ever get raided, like, this could be uh, a problem. But I just love the personal touch of that, and I love the heart behind it. And really, as we begin a series today talking about this letter, you're going to see the heart behind what John wanted to communicate to uh, his readers. And what we're going to do today is large kind of set the stage uh, for that and uh, for that letter and for this journey that we're going to be on uh, throughout the next several weeks. And uh, as we were kind of thinking about letters, I like to kind of have some fun from time to time. You might not find these funny, but here's some letters that I found. Jess was kind of like, you know, that's corny, whatever. But just hang with me. I, some of you are going to laugh. It's okay to laugh, okay? And uh, here's, here's just some great letters that I found, okay? So How about this one? Dear girls who tormented me in seventh grade because I was smarter than you, I need you to work overtime tomorrow. Sincerely, your boss. I mean, come on. It's good stuff. Uh, What about this one? Dear John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt, your name is my name too. Sincerely, John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt. Come come on. (laughs) Dear Fork, I understand that we haven't spoken since I ran away with a dish, but I thought you should know that you have a son. His name is Spork. He has your hair. Sincerely, the spoon. Love that. How about this one? Dear Yahoo, never heard anyone say, I don't know, let's Yahoo it. Just saying. Sincerely, Google. 
Well, that's just to have a little fun. Um, as we kick off this series today, I thought it would be super helpful. I found this great video. And by the way, um, these videos are available on basically every book of the Bible, every subject through Bible Project. And this video, in just a really concise way, gives us some important background for First John. Uh, it's a little longer than what I normally show, but I think you're going to find the benefit in it. Let's watch. The letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 1st John is actually anonymous, but 2nd and 3rd John are written by someone who's called the Elder. Now, the language and style of all three of these works are identical to each other and to John's gospel. And so most people think that all of them come from the disciples that Jesus loved. Now, that could be John, the son of Zebedee, one of the 12 apostles, or it could be another John among Jesus's earliest disciples known as John the Elder. Whichever John it was, he's now in his old age, and he's overseeing a network of house church communities that are likely around the city of ancient Ephesus. Now, from clues within the gospel and from these letters, it seemed that these communities were made up mostly of Jewish followers of Jesus, and that they had recently gone through a crisis that motivated John to write these letters. He mentions that a group of people have broken off from these churches. These people no longer acknowledge Jesus as Israel's Messiah or as the Son of God. And they're stirring up hostility among those who stayed faithful to the churches. In fact, 2nd and 3rd John clearly address this conflict. 2nd John is a warning to a specific house church. There are people who deny Jesus. John calls them deceivers. And they're probably going to come looking for validation or support. And this church community is not to offer any. 3rd John is actually written to a member of one of these house churches, a man named Gaius. And the elder asks him to welcome legitimate missionaries who are going to arrive soon. He has to tell him to do this because the leader of that church community, Diotrephes, is acting like a jerk. And he's rejecting anybody associated with John the elder. And so these letters give us a window into the tension and conflict that John faced in these churches. And 1st John was written as a response to all of this as a form of damage control. The elder assures those who still believe in the Messiah, Jesus, that God is with them as they adhere to the truth. And so all of this helps us understand the uniqueness of 1st John, which is actually not a letter at all. It reads more like a poetic sermon sent to these churches. John says that he's not communicating new information. In fact, almost all of the key ideas and words in 1st John come right out of Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of John. And so John's goal is to remind them and persuade these Christians to stay true to what they already say they believe. The poetic quality of John's sermon is really cool. He doesn't develop his ideas in a linear or logical way. Rather, he uses a well-known technique of ancient rhetoric called amplification. So John has just a few core ideas he wants to communicate about life and truth and love. And he's going to cycle around these ideas repeatedly, each time offering a little bit different of an angle or emphasis. He uses a lot of hyperbole. He uses very stark contrast with simple images of light and dark and love and hate and good and evil. But don't let the simplicity of 1 John fool you. This work is deeply profound. There's a clear introduction to 1 John and then a clear conclusion. And the flowing cycles of the sermon in between these two don't follow any kind of rigid literary design. But there do seem to be two larger sections. Each one is marked off by the introductory phrase, this is the message. And then each is followed by a repetition of images about how God is first light and then how God is love. And all of the ideas in these two parts flow out of and cycle back into these two core ideas. 
So the introduction is very similar to the prologue of the Gospel of John. It has echoes of Genesis chapter 1 and Proverbs chapter 8. John speaks of the word of life that was with God in the beginning. For John, the word God refers to both the Father and the Son who came to bring life into the world. And so those who saw and heard and touched the Son are called we. John's referring to himself and the apostles who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. And so now we have a message for you, the next generation of Jesus' followers. So when the apostles share the word of life with others, these others are also brought into fellowship with the Father and the Son through the apostles. The word fellowship here is koinonia in Greek. It means a participation or sharing. When people hear the message about Jesus through the apostles, that message brings them into a real relationship with Jesus himself and into a real participation in God's own love and life. Well, there you have it. I was going to draw all that stuff out for you guys, but it's better that way. Well, let's read that uh, letter sermon then, the beginning of that letter hybrid sermon um, in 1 John. It begins like this, 1 John uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. So there's a lot going on there. This is a really dense uh, several uh, verses here, and I love what one commentator said about this. He said that we could say that in these four verses, John gave us enough to live our whole Christian life on. And so there is a lot of depth to these. We're going to unpack that here for just a bit. And as we dive into the sermon letter here, we're going to look at some key features and why they mattered, specifically the subject, who it's from, who it's for, and why it was written. Okay, so first the subject. The subject we see uh, in the first verse that uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, and then he simplifies it down to this. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. And this phraseology is a phraseology that John would use throughout all of the books that he uh, writes. And in simplified terms, he's speaking about Jesus. And he talks about it in John 1 as well. The word, the logos, the, uh, the word became flesh. Um, the one that was around from the beginning. And what you see here is he uses these words that are very poetic. Um, and really capture this unique beauty about the subject that he's talking about, um, we see that as he describes Jesus in these phrases, as he talks about God, he almost just gets kind of swept up. And this is kind of the tone that you can read um, as you think about what he's describing, because he's describing something really difficult to grasp and capture. And he's, he's describing the incomprehensible, the incomparable, immeasurable God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and this is the primary subject of 1 John, by the way, as well as the entirety of the entire scripture. And, and here's why I tell you that, because if we start out and we start, which a lot of times we're all guilty of, we pick up the Bible and we read it as a story about us, primarily. 
then we largely miss the point and we misunderstand a lot of what's being communicated and the implications for us. And so we have to understand that while we play a part in the story, we are not the subject of the story. And this is something that we see very clearly as John talks about God, as he talks about the word of life. First John, while speaking to us and carrying implications for us, is not about us. It's about the word of life. It's about Jesus. And so what John is speaking about, he is capturing the subject. He's capturing the subject under which all subjects are subjected. Say that five times fast. One commentator makes this remark about John as he's talking about these things, he, about these introductory verses. He says, observe the wonder in the apostle's language. Speech fails him. He labors for expression, adding definition to definition. And so it's almost like he's tripping over himself, trying to describe this incomprehensible God, the word of life. There used to be this song that was like, and, and to be honest with you, it kind of... Um, it just got a little bit like played out for me, but there was this song by Chris Tomlin, like it was on the radio like eight times a day when I was growing up, and it, it went like, it, but the, the words were great, indescribable, uncontainable, awestruck, we fall to our knees as we humbly, humbly proclaim, you are amazing, God. John Stott says it this way, he says that we must continue to affirm the uniqueness and finality of Jesus Christ, for he is unique in his incarnation the one and only God-man, unique in his atonement, only he died for the sins of the world, and unique in his resurrection, only he has conquered death. And since in no other person but Jesus of Nazareth did God first become human in his birth, then bear our sins in his death, and then triumph over death in his resurrection, he is, he is uniquely competent to save sinners. Nobody else possesses his qualifications. And I like this last part. So we may talk about Alexander the Great, Charles the Great, Napoleon the Great, but not Jesus the Great. He's not the Great. He is the only. There is nobody like him. He has no rival and no successor. It's what Thomas Aquinas describes. He says the surest way to know him is as utterly unknowable. And so I say that to say that no matter how much we dig and, and dive deeper into this topic of God, there's still more to know. We'll never reach the bottom. And so as we think about that and we live in this tension between what we can know, right, because God has revealed himself to us, and what we can't know, how do we fill that gap? And I would suggest to you that what we fill that gap with is wonder, wonder. And that's the tone with which we can read John's words. And when we have wonder, wonder gives way to worship. Now, I, um, we went camping a few weeks back. And one thing, I, we had a blast with the kids getting out, doing that whole thing. And, but it's a lot of work to go camping. And uh, it really, and, and specifically when you're cleaning up. Because I don't know if you've noticed this, but everything fits really neatly when you head out. And then all of a sudden, you got specifically kids' sleeping bags. I just, just a suggestion for those that are making kids' sleeping bags. Could you spare a little fabric in the bag that they go into? You know what I'm talking about? Like, how do you roll that thing back? It's like almost impossible unless you do it exactly right to get that thing. I'm like, uh, just like, just throw the bag away. Like, we, there's no way we're getting that sleeping bag back in that bag. And some of you know what I'm talking about. So just, just, just a suggestion for anybody that's listening, just make the bags a little bigger. That, that would be amazing. And... Uh, but, you know, you start pulling that stuff out and it just doesn't go back in. And I think that 
Um, there's a lot for us to learn there when it comes to our theology because we try to do the same thing with our theology and our thoughts about God. We try to fit it into this neat, tidy little bag, but what you discover is the more that you pull out, the more questions that you have, the harder it is to fit back into that little bag. And that's by design. God has put this wonder inside of us for us to continue to, 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 continue to dig deeper and to search further after him. And find that often what happens is we raise a question, we find a question leads to another question, and so on and so forth. And this, it takes us on a journey of wonder. Now, I say all that to say one of the challenges that really happened here, he talks about the crisis that existed here in the early church that John was addressing. Well, some of the ideas that flowed out of that early church moment was what was happening is we had some of these deceivers, as he calls them, reframing who Jesus was, right? And so they were trying to kind of build this Christian faith, but they were, they were basically breaking down the, the framework and foundation that really holds it all together. And so they were sort of reframing who Jesus was in the middle of this. One of the main ways that this was happening was through um, an ideology called Gnosticism. And it was this fallacy that really came about because um, they, they believed all kinds of things, like matter was evil, and so surely Jesus couldn't have had a physical body, and so they didn't believe that Jesus was this. They, they started to teach that he was kind of like this, this ghost, this like phantom. And, uh, and so this is what John is attacking. He's coming back after. He's like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Like, that is not, that's not, this is not the foundation of the faith that you were once taught. He's, he's reminding them. He's bringing them back into this place of wonder. And he does the same thing in his eyewitness testimony. He says this, and I love it because it really, John, if you look at the book of John, the gospel of John, it begins in wonder and it ends in wonder. Here's how it begins. In the beginning was the word, and you can't not read wonder and worship into these phrases, by the way. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he ends his book like this. He says, now this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things. I love when people talk about themselves in the third person. You know, it's like, it's like now this is the disciple who, yep, and he has written these things, and we know that his testimony is True. Now, there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. He's like, guys, I could write books all day long about all the many things that he's done and all that he is. But the, the whole world wouldn't even hold the books. And I love this imagery that he's painting in our minds to say, God is completely incomprehensible, yet knowable. He's knowable and unknowable all at the same time. And so here's my challenge to you as we begin to read this letter. May we read this book, this letter, this sermon with the same sense of wonder and worship that John does, getting swept up in the subject to which all subjects are subjected. So this is the subject. The second thing I want to look at is who's it from? And we already got some background on this, but it's from John the Elder and eyewitness. It's from the apostles. That's the we in this. But I love this, how he's like, he's the elder. Like, I mean, talk about just a really cool name, like John the Elder, you know? It's like he, he sort of identified this title, and, uh, and it's important because what he's doing is he's establishing authority compared to all of these other teachers that are out there, and he's saying, listen, John the Elder. 
And I was just, it kind of made me think about like how we really like retitle a lot of things these days, you know? Um, like garbage man, uh, men and women are sanitation workers. We've got, uh, did you know that elevator operators are part of the vertical engineering core? Like for real, this is like, this is the thing. Subway workers, you know what they are? They're sandwich artists. I'm surprised you didn't know that, right? And although there's times I've gone in there, I'm like, this is a little bit less than a work of art. I'm just saying, like, you just kind of slap some meat on there. Like, that could be a little bit neater. I don't know. Um, but they're sandwich artists. It kind of had me thinking, like, if I was going to come up with my own job title for some things, you know, like, what if you could just write your own job title? Like, what would it be, you know, as, and all the roles that you play? And I was kind of thinking, like, what about, like, the job title of a parent? Like, parent's a cool title, but, like, what if I was, like, a chaos management expert, you know, this, is, this like speaks to like what I'm doing every day. Or, you know, as a husband, what if I was a DIY project management specialist, you know, rather than just the guy that does shoddy work around the house? Like, you know, it's like, that would be way cooler, right? And here John is, he's like, you know, like he captures in a title quite a bit, and that is to call himself the elder. He's saying, listen, like, I have authority, you know? I have authority here, and I'm speaking not on the authority that I hold, possess on my own, but the authority given to me as an eyewitness, as an apostle. So, you know, respect your elders. This is what this passage is saying, right? And he also differentiates himself as an eyewitness, which is important, from the false teachers who are letting cultural thinking distort the image of the true Jesus, and so here he's saying, he's like, listen, don't fall for that. Why? He's saying, we were there. We, we heard it with our own ears. We heard Jesus speak. He taught us directly. We have seen with our eyes. We have looked at him and we have touched him. And so it's important to know that as we read the scripture, these are actual historical documents. And this is historical documentation of the testimony of those who were, had a firsthand encounter with this historical figure named Jesus. And so, yes, they have divine implication, but they also are historical documents, and we should read them in that context. It actually adds to the beauty of it. And so unlike the false teachers who are building philosophy and theology based on conjecture, nobody had a better perspective than those that had a front row seat to Jesus' life. They experienced him as they watched as he died on the cross and they experienced him after he physically was walking around in bodily form, right? They experienced the risen Jesus. And so this is why he's passionate about this. He's like, no, 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 don't listen to the false teaching that's out there. And it reminds me as he's saying these things, when as he says the life appeared, we've seen it, we testified to it, we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. It's reminiscent of the words of Paul to the Colossians when he says, listen, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And it provides a warning for us that, hey, there's going to be all kinds of ideas out there. There's going to be all kinds of ideologies. There's going to be all kinds of isms. While Gnosticism might be as common today, there are all kinds of isms, and there's all kinds of thinking surrounding Jesus, and it's up to us to take that journey and to really make those decisions supported by evidence and truth, I would hope, to arrive at the place where we kind of build our theology and thinking, and we build our picture of who Jesus actually is. And so we must be on guard. We must be on guard today. 
to those things that run contrary to the truth of who Christ is. By allowing God's book and the testimony of eyewitnesses to have the ultimate say in our lives in regards to what is true and what has authority over our lives. And it's easy for us to kind of let our feelings drive the day and say, you know, this sets well with me or this doesn't. And we kind of build our theology in that way and we sort of set the book on the back shelf from time to time. We're like, I'm good with like these aspects, but that's a little bit tough for me. Now, again, everything in context, but it does have authority over our lives coming from eyewitnesses, coming from the apostles and their testimony. And so that is who it's from. Who's it to? Well, specifically, it's to these churches, right? In Ephesus, it's to the church. But we can more specifically say, based on the tone of his writing, that he's writing this as to God's family, to his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that's why the tone is so personal for John, because he's not just writing to a bunch of strangers, he's writing to his family. It's a family letter. And so when he offers these warnings, and you know, imagine a caring father or somebody who is a caring example in your family writing a letter to your family and saying, hey, be on guard of these things, or remember what we're about, here's what you need to hear. And so that's the imagery that we're given here. While the church can be referred to in a lot of different ways throughout the scripture, here the imagery is family the people of God, who are the family of God. And this is the identity that John wants his readers to adopt for themselves, that you are God's family. This is who I'm writing to. Why do I say that? Well, you can see that based on the usage of different words in this, all throughout this letter, you're going to see that father was used a whole bunch of times. It was used 13 times. Little children was used 11 times in these short few chapters, right? And so this verbiage tells us that he is speaking to God's children. And so he's using this familial type language. Dr. J. Vernon McGee says um, that it takes the child of God, this letter, takes the child of God across the threshold into the fellowship of the father's home. And he calls it the family epistle. So John writes to the family of God. That's who he, his audience is. But the last question, and perhaps one of the most important questions here, is why? Why does he write this? Because every true letter has a purpose. It has a reason behind it, right? And so here, John is writing this for a very specific purpose, and he he spells that out quite plainly in the last section when he says, here's why I write this, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this then to make our, all of our, joy complete. And so the purpose is to make our joy complete through fellowship with God and others. And right, it's like all of us want that last part, right? The joy that we're meant to experience in life. But here, he's also spelling out for us how we experience that joy in a true and lasting way that's not circumstantial. It's not based on, hey, things are going well, things aren't going so well. But this this concrete joy that comes through fellowship with God and others. And the word here, you already heard him say it, but that's, it's the word koinonia. That's a kind of a fun word to say. Say it with me. Ready? Koinonia. Now, I want that word to really stick with you because this word really captures all of this section and really sets the stage for the entire letter. It is koinonia is the, the purpose and the reason why he wrote this letter. It means this. It means sharing. 
It means a, a communion, a common bond, a common life. It speaks of a living, breathing, sharing relationship with another person. Now, here's what's interesting about its usage here. This is, this is not the context that this was typically used in at the time. This idea that one could actually, what's described here is like really this, this bond, this human relationship, right? This sharing together. It wasn't typically used to describe a relationship with mankind, with humanity, and God. And so this is just like what he's saying is absolutely revolutionary. It's completely forward thinking for its time to say, no, what I'm saying is that we have fellowship with God. You can have fellowship with God. You can actually have this relationship with God. And that is not just an, uh, hey, I, ho I hope you do kind of thing. This is like, this is where life is found, is in this relationship. He's saying, this is why I write this. This is why I remind you of things. I don't want you to be pulled away from the life which is truly life. I don't want you to be pulled away from this fellowship that can be found with God. And so this is what he is saying. And so, again, profound idea here to have this relationship with God. And he also kind of, he puts these two things together to say, not only do we need a relationship with God, but we need a relationship with one another. I actually, I'll probably share this in a later week if, on a different idea, but I just read an article today that, um, I think it was out of the Wall Street Journal, they did this crazy study where they, they found that what is it that makes people really happy? And I'm giving you kind of the brief version, but two things they realized, they, they were typically people who had some sort of um, connection to God, and number two, they had connection with each other. I mean, it's like the thing the Bible's been saying all along, right? And so we're coming to all this research, right, that's suggesting the exact same thing. And so here, it is through koinonia, it is through a relationship with God that we find true satisfaction, that we find true joy. And so as we think about what does this look like, right? Because I think for a lot of us, and we're all guilty of this, we kind of like you know, we see this relationship with God as, you know, or this, you know, this us and God thing as, hey, I'm just going to kind of sprinkle a little Jesus on top of my life kind of thing, you know, like I just, you know, or kind of infuse a little bit here and there, but that's different than the picture that's being painted here. And I think this is why a lot of us maybe feel dissatisfied even in our faith is because we haven't fully embraced it. We're sort of like, hey, I kind of just have, I'll have a little Jesus here, a little Jesus there. Like, just give me a splash of Jesus, just like everything else in our life, right? If I could just kind of carve out a little bit of time here and there. But this is something beyond that. This is experiencing, again, koinonia, this shared life. And uh, we, we just started doing kids' soccer. And this is, kids' soccer has got to be one of the most amusing things to watch. And, uh, you know, I think just in general, one of my new favorite pastimes is watching little kids run. Like they're, just, like, they're just so, like, awkward, but, like, it's just so cute. They're just, like, these little legs, like, that they can't, you know, and they're running down. And then all of a sudden, it's like, nothing's there, and somebody will just trip and fall. You know, it's like this. And so, but it's funny. And when you're watching, like, kids soccer, because you just started uh, playing kids soccer. He's three years old, and it's about a bunch of three-year-olds out there. It's just, it's a, it's a mess out there. You know, it's wild. But what I've noticed is that kids soccer players are pack animals. You know what I'm talking about? You ever watch the kids' soccer game? The ball is here, and there's just a pack of kids. Like, they go here, the ball goes up here, they're all like, okay, we're all together here, you know? And there's usually, like, one or two good kids on the team that actually know how to play soccer, and the other ones just run with the pack, you know? And so, it's like, you get the one kid that just, like, kicks it all the way down the field, scores, and then everybody, yeah, you know, and then they do the other thing the other way, and it's just hilarious. Um, and Jude, he's, he's still kind of figuring it out. Like, he, 
He's, some of the time, he's just like sitting there like looking down at his shoes. Like he's just like, and every, the stuff's going on all around him. He's like, oh, you know, and he's back in the game and he's like playing and he'll get some kicks in. And, uh, but he's playing soccer with um, Connor, who's the, the campus pastor up at Middletown. His son's named Titus. They're the same age. They're good buddies. And we got them on the same team. And so they're playing soccer together. And uh, it's really funny because um, when Jude is engaged in the game, he goes everywhere Titus goes. Like, I'm not talking, like, they are next to each other, like, about to knock each other over the whole time because they're so close. It's not like, you know, you learn over time, like, spread out, like, pass the ball. They're, like, they're against each other. In fact, yesterday, there was one time, and they'd run up and down the field together, and Titus is the one who's actually, like, he scores all of our goals. Like, he's just, and Jude just stays right next to him, you know, like, rarely touches the ball, but he's just right there every time he goes. And the other day, though, he started getting, they were both kicking it, and they're like, they're like kicking it almost like, I can't even tell which leg is which kid, you know, they're like kicking it down the field, and they're like in a, in unison, and they literally like scored a goal, like together as a unit, and I'm like, wow, that was like really, really cool. And uh, I got a little quick video clip just so you can watch how fun it is to watch little people run, but there they are, like th those are those two dudes right there working together, and they didn't score here, but um, but that gives you the idea. Why do I tell you all that? Because to me, this is the picture of koinonia. This is the point of fellowship, right? It's like, I'm going everywhere that he's going, right? And when it comes to life with Jesus, this is what it looks like. Like, I'm going everywhere that Jesus is going. And then, like a pack, because Christians are pack animals, we're made for community. You think about, again, back to the Genesis story. This is how we were made. We were made for community. And so we do it together. We do this shared life together. And so wherever our brothers and sisters go, we have people around us that are, that are in our corner, that are supporting us when things aren't going so well. They're encouraging us when we need a little bit of encouragement. They're breathing life into us. They're showering us with grace. Whatever it is, sometimes they're giving us a little kick in the rear to say, hey, you know, get your head right again. You know, you're falling off course, whatever it is. And this is the shared life. It's the shared life. And why do I say all that? Why does that matter? Because a shared life is the best life. And it is the shared life with Christ and others that leads us to finding that joy that is truly complete. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your goodness, for your mercy. Thank you um, as we just get to meet with you in the text. We believe that this book is, is living and active, God. If you want to stir something up in someone today, God, I, I just pray that you would do that, that you would continue to remind everybody in this room, regardless of, of where they're at in their spiritual journey, if they would even say they have one, God, I, I, I pray, God, that you would just remind them of your love for them, your desire to have fellowship with them, and your desire, God, to allow them to experience this life of satisfaction and joy that only comes in fellowship with you. God, I pray that you would continue to strengthen us as a community, as people, as your family, that we could come alongside our brothers and sisters, that we could pick each other up. And God, I just pray that as we lean into this next series, as we dig deeper into 1 John, God, that you would offer us the reminders that we need, the guidance we need, Help us to get a fuller picture of who you are, God, and your character and your desires for us. It's all about Jesus, and we just want more of him. We pray 